Hey, Musa Slava, and welcome to the 96th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated scene writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the excellent MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to music critiquing to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And this week, I was able to fly out to Denver and sit down with my old Tennessean colleague, Jeff Legwald, who's now a senior NFL writer for ESPN, where he covers the league and the Denver Broncos. And this was like old home week for me. Jeff and I discussed how a blue-collar kid carved out a career in sports writing, we talked about surviving the death of a newspaper, in this case, the Rocky Mountain News, we talked about covering the passing of a beloved Bronco defensive back who died far too young. So, I hope you get into this one as much as I did. Right now, two writers, slinging yay. All right, so Jeff, we are, uh, we're sitting here in Denver at a Starbucks. In the glorious sunshine. In the glorious sunshine of Denver, Colorado. Thank you. I'm freezing my ass off. You look very comfortable. Um, I was thinking about something uh, first. This has nothing to do with the NFL or your coverage. So we were together for about a year at the yeah, Tennessee. I saw you in your in your beginnings. Yeah, and uh, actually, it's kind of funny. I was thinking about this the other day because I was a. Uh, I look back. I'm aware I was like an insufferably cocky sort of. Oh, you do it. I was. Though. You knew what you wanted to be. Uh, but I always thought like. You, there were different people who like kind of doubt like I look back and I really am embarrassed by the way I was at the Tennessee because <laughs> I was all, young we all are well, I, was deep, I always thought you were like a really nice guy to me like it's almost like I remember being at the Tennessee and a lot of I get called into the editor's office all the time and people are pissed off at me and you need to grow up and you need you always seem to have like a bemused expression about it all almost like eh we've all been there do you feel that way oh we've all been it's like learning to drive yeah. I think you're a great driver before you start like, it's funny, I'm teaching my daughter a driver now, and she thinks she's a great driver. Yeah, my kids all, they thought they were great drivers, and then they get behind the wheel, all of a sudden it's like, wow, there's a lot happening here, I didn't realize. Right. I, 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 and I remember... Were you that way? I, you know, I, I, I come from a different... You know, I had no inclination I would ever write anything, because my dad worked for the railroad, uh, my mom never finished high school. You grew up in Chicago? Yeah, and... So our life was factories moving when they raised the rent, no health care. You know, that, that was, I didn't think about going to college or being a writer. So I, I sort of fell into it and I've always, you know, thought if, if I can help anybody, I'm going to do it and I'm going to appreciate people's efforts. And I always thought you worked your ass off because you wanted to do it and you love to write. So. Who am I to say how people should do it? Yeah. I mean, who am I to say that this is the only way? I mean, I've I've taught some adjunct journalism. I speak to classes a lot, and I I tell them that there's there's no one way to do it. And it's I, to me, I think the, the worst thing we can do, especially now, when we need everybody good in the business because the business is different, and, and I want it to survive. I want it to be important to people. So I think it's. To me, if people want to do it, we should find a way to help us. Wait, so I uh, this podcast generally isn't a sort of this is your life format, but yeah. I am kind of interested because you brought up so you you brought up in kind of a blue collar background. You don't yeah, know you're all gonna, blue collar. Yeah, so yeah. how do you why did you decide to be a writer? I, you know, because they paid At Illinois. Uh, the uh, guy on the dorm floor, University of Illinois. Yep, at, uh, he works at WGN. He's been there a long time. He's like their 
Uh, he does promotions and all kinds of. But back in the day, he he, he wrote for the Daily Lineup, and he had worked for his school paper in high school and all that. I hadn't done any of that stuff. We didn't even really have a high school paper. So, but he said they and I was putting my own my, myself through school, and he said, you know, they pay. I was like, okay, I'm on board. Right. And I thought I would major in journalism. I wanted to try it. But I don't know, you had to wait two years. You went to two years of school, and then you applied. Undecided. Yeah, or just liberal arts, uh-huh. or whatever. And then you applied to get the journalism school. So right. then I knew I was going to have two years to see if I really wanted to do it. And he said, yeah, they paid. And they paid by what they called a column inch then. So the more you wrote, the more you got paid, which was a dream for me. So right. I volunteered for everything. I covered everything. Women's rugby, tennis, it didn't matter. I went. If I didn't know anything, I still went. I didn't, you know, I hadn't seen a lacrosse game until I covered one. Right. You know, that kind of stuff. So they How much did. do you think you were making for a story if you had to look back? Oh, it's ridiculous. It was like 25 cents a column inch or something right. like that. But we thought it was gold. Right. But... You know, so you, what happens is you overwrite. Of course. They're paying by length. So right. you're like, oh, I'm glorious. Right. You know, you, but don't you actually think in a way, like... you're Hemingway. Right, but don't you think in a way, like... I always say, like, one of the great criticisms of younger writers is they overwrite. Yeah. And I always think, like, you need to overwrite when you're young. Don't you think? To figure out how not to overwrite. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I always, whenever I speak to a group, I always bring out my favorite quote ever of Twain, which was uh, when he wrote to a friend... I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. And I love that quote. That's really good. It's true. And I tell that, you know, that's I learned writing long that you didn't have to. Because when you're you're honest, you have to be honest, though. If you're not honest, it's never going to work. If you're honest, you say, oh, yeah, that's perfect. But I'd look back and I would like, you know, the the last 12 graphs of that were... (laughs) Totally unnecessary. Right. Was getting you paid. Yeah. Right. But it was but it was money. It was tuition. Right. Yeah. But did you love writing? I I came to find I did. I didn't know anything about it. I was you know, we didn't have uh, grammar at my in my schools. We did I mean I was as raw as raw could be. I was beyond raw. Right. I didn't know what I was doing and I just was winging it. So you know, I had to learn like sentence structure in college essentially right. that was way behind but I liked doing it and I didn't care I guess I, I didn't mind asking for help either which is a hard thing to do right I, I see now you know I see younger people now don't want to ask for help right because then you know you're almost admitting I don't know how to do this so to me I don't I guess I, I knew I didn't know right. how to do it so. didn't uh, Illinois produce I mean Ebert great, obviously William Mack right great journalism school yeah it was back then it was really good they had some tough times 10-15 years ago but when I was there it was a really good journalism school and most of the guys I went with uh, ended up in the business at some point right. but as a downsize to everything people have moved on but uh, and then I just stayed at the at the DI that was my job in college and then you know I I uh, I just decided one day when Illinois basketball and football were popular enough I called a bunch of small papers downstate. I said, can I write stories for you? And uh, a bunch of them said no, but the Moline Daily Dispatch said yes, and they paid me. I, I couldn't have finished Illinois if it not for the Moline Daily Dispatch. You just did that on your own? You called them yeah, up? I called them up, and I had to dictate everything because we didn't have laptops and the rest of it. But, uh, so this is like mid-80s? Yeah, this would be like 82, 83. You graduated in 85, right? 85. Uh-huh. 
so yeah, I called I called like 14 papers. They were the only ones that occasionally other papers would take one or two, but they took three a week, 40 bucks each. And in 1983, that was a lot of money. Yeah. yeah that's how I paid the rent. Bought groceries, all that. They, they took three a week uh, during football season. Sometimes they took four a week. So it was like, it was awesome. I feel like this is a recurring theme uh, on this podcast, but also when I talk to students, like um, when I was at uh, when I was in college at Delaware, I applied probably to 150 newspapers for an internship right. one year. Yeah. And people think like you think in now terms. You think you send an email to 100. Yeah. No, Just type it out letter. Literally 150 packets. You had to find the address. Right. You had to find the editor to write to. You had to, you had to learn the right person. It was a long, involved process. I I tell this to when I graduated from college, I applied, actually applied to 366 <laughs> daily newspapers. That's awesome. And they all told me no, and I kept all the letters in a box for a long time just because yeah. I it, it has to be a record right everyone I've ever met in the business has always said that's pretty good it was 366 and then my first sports writing job was Saratoga Springs New York which at the time was the smallest seven day a week newspaper in the country and I tell everybody see I started at the smallest seven day a week newspaper in the country that's, that's how much was your starting salary do you remember yeah, I don't, when I worked at I covered cops at City News in Chicago which was a very famous place back then. Mike Royko worked there. Kurt Vonnegut worked there. Uh, there was no writing there. All you did was dictate. You were a street reporter. All you did that, I learned to report really then. Wait, this is why you were in college or no, after Saratoga? Right after college. Okay. My first reporting job okay. was a cops report at City News Bureau. And they used to call it boot camp for journalists. Uh, but like I say, Vonnegut worked there. Royko worked there. Tons of people who ended up at the Tribune sometimes. Back then, the Daily News uh, all worked there. It's, it was very famous. And there I made 185 a week. And no mileage. Right. So I just drove my car all over the place for no mileage. Was it fun? It was hard because I worked night cops. So I, I worked 5.30 p.m. to 2.30 a.m. So I saw everything. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we had special credentials from the police department. Because City News was formed because they didn't want seven police reporters on crime scenes. So City News was the pool report. Oh, right. So you got a badge or a credential that you wore from the police department. It had a police logo on it, your picture, and you got under the tape, essentially, right. at night. And you were the pool report for TV stations in Chicago, but you didn't write. There was no writing. You called the desk and, right. and did that. I, uh, when I was at the Tennessee and I got punished and I got put on uh, cop speed for a you month and a half. My favorite lead in history that I never. Oh, John heard. Smith, the one who was a blowjob? I, blow <laughs> I still tell that story to people. So do I. It's my all timer. He never appeared he, anywhere, but it is. It is he did want a blowjob, though. And it's one of my all time favorite leads because most people went, would do cops. In fact, it told me something about you. Most people would have done cops like, um, I hate this and I'm just going to be bad at it so they don't make me do it anymore. You actually try to make a story. It was awesome. <laughs> That was a prostitution sting. That's a classic. Yeah, that is that's a fun. That's an all-time classic. I wish I had written that lead, but yeah. I did not. 
It wouldn't have made it either, so. I, I would have written, you know, 12 people arrested Tuesday night in the prostitution, you know. Right. You actually but, went for it. But don't you think the... It's uh, too deep. Yeah. <laughs> he did. He just wanted a blowjob. 40 bucks. Don't you, um... Yeah. Don't the cops... But it just never appeared. Never appeared. <laughs> Only in my mind and stories throughout. In fact, the face of the editor who edited it was... It was um, Ted Power. It was the best. And I remember him going, yeah. Jeff, we live, we're in the Bible Belt. Yeah. You can't do this. Heads in hand. Or hand in hand. Yeah. Um, don't you think cops is an invaluable sort of experience? I learned how to report. Totally. That because in my situation, there were no cell phones and there were no laptops. Yeah. So if you didn't get the information at that time and the rewrite desk asked you for that and you didn't have it, you would have to go back and get it. Right. So you'd have to physically go find the either the officer who was on the scene or the sergeant who was in charge of the investigation, you would have to go out to the station. Right. So it, the penalty for not remembering to ask a question was huge. Right. So that's where I learned to ask everything. Right. Even if I thought I knew the answer. Right. Which is our, to me, our biggest crime is you, you don't ask the questions because you think you know the answer. Well, there's nothing worse, worse than getting back and knowing you left a question on the table. Or even an easy one. Right. What's his middle initial? Right. It's like, oh. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I don't have it. Well, yeah. you know, go get it. Right. And they were ruthless on the day. That's why they were famous back right. then. Right. They were ruthless. They would send you back for everything. You know, is, uh, does William have one out? Right. You know, that type of stuff. You were going back. Have you had an all-time, I mean, I have about 700 of them. Have you had an all-time worst mistake from your career? But not a, not a gaffe of, uh, like, forgetting to ask. Yeah. Simple questions. Right. That's those are my biggest crimes. Right. You get in a hurry, or you're trying to remember everything you want to ask, and right. you know I don't. I've, I've come close to. You know, had I not gone back and checked something, I've come close to publishing something. Right. That was way off. Right. That would have been. So I feel like a lot of young writers now, they don't come up with... I've messed up a name or two that's unforgivable to yeah. me, and I hate myself forever. Right. Do that. Wait, don't you think now editing is not, like, when you came up and I came up, it's real quick, get it in. When, when we were coming up, though, I mean, when I was at Sports Illustrated, if you got something wrong, even when I was at the Tennessean, if you got something wrong, it was a mark upon your house. I mean, it was... But that's where the cuts have come. Yeah. You know, a lot of newspaper companies have gone to universal desks, so the desk is in another city from right. where the story was written. Right. And I think that's, and I think the average reader, that's their biggest frustration with, with the internet or the printed word right now. Is right. They don't perceive it as being edited as strongly as it should, because, you know, they'll, they tend to notice typos right. more than... You do write it because when you when you write, you know what you want it to say. So sometimes your your head plays a trick on you. You know you, you've done tons of editing. I mean, it, you don't catch it till like the third time through. Right. Um, Why did you start covering the NFL? How that happened? I just I like the I, I got a taste of it here or there. Even before I was in Pittsburgh, I got occasionally I'd get sent to you know at City News I covered some labor issues and that type of stuff. So that was cool. Uh-huh. That wasn't actual sport, but it was it was cool to do those types of stories. And then when I was uh, even at a small newspaper like Danville, Illinois, I would do it in my spare time. You know, like I started going to the combine before most everybody. And why? Just because I it was where everybody was and, and nobody really knew about it then. Right. There were only a handful of reporters at the first one in Indy. 
Like, what year was that? 87. So you were at the 87 NFL Combine. Yeah. And I, I did it, you know, those first years, I would only go for one or two days and it was on my own. Like when I worked in Danville, which was 90, 89, 90, somewhere in there. And even in Saratoga, I would figure out a way. Like in Saratoga, I would visit my parents and then I'd shoot to India on my way back. So you pay your own way, basically. Essentially. Yeah. But back then it was easier. Yeah. You know, hotel rooms were... Right. Nobody knew what was going on. So right. it, was, it was easy. I mean, like I said, I think there were five reporters at the first one, five or six. That's amazing. You were one of them. And nobody knew who I was. And, you know, they were established NFL writers. And I think, I can't remember the crew, but I think, you know, I think... I don't think there's too many. There might be only one or two of people left in the business who were there. Did the combine feel like it meant something back then? It, it was undiscovered country. I mean, even indie paper didn't even write about it, really. Right. So you were at something, but the whole league was there. Right. And there's, no, you know, at the time, remember, there's no internet, so, you know, it was the word didn't get out, right. really. Wait, this is, this is kind of jumping around, but I'm interested. Like, you're a guy who's covered the NFL for a long time. So, like you were saying, you were you were covering the NFL when the Jets were playing in Shea Stadium, when you know you couldn't buy a so and so team hat anywhere on the internet, right. blah blah yeah. blah. You where it was, it you was had, you had to actually find a way to right. Where baseball was the biggest kind of sport in America, still in a lot of ways. Yeah. Is there any part of you that sees everything now that is the NFL? the uh, monolith that is the NFL yeah. and you just long for the old days when it was a little more innocent and I miss I miss the, the you just had better relationships with the people I mean, you can still have those like there are players I've covered who I, I still have lunch with from time to time but they will have played for the team a lot longer you know it has to be almost like an eight year player a nine year player before that develops right. it used to be a lot quicker Right. You know, when I covered the Steelers, we we do training camp and we ate in the cafeteria with them. And you know, the rule was if they sat with you, that was cool. Right. You know, and guys would sit with you. Right. They didn't avoid you. You know. Right. Even was the press less of the enemy back then than it is now, or less? I think we we wrote. There's no free agency, so you weren't writing about their money. Right. Oh, I think that's changed the game. Right. You know, we're writing about their money now. We're writing about their contracts. Before it was all slotted. You, could, you knew what a guy was going to make, whether he was going to the Hall of Fame or not. Right. And he had no leverage. You know, when the season ended, uh, there was no off-season program like they have now. You know, it was like three days in June they would have a mini camp, and that was it. You guys would be totally out of shape, and some of them were working other jobs. Right. It was just a different, a different thing. I think when when the money got so huge, and all of a sudden you're writing about guys' money, and you're writing about off-the-field behavior, you're writing about those things, I think it changes the dynamic. It makes guys a little more guarded. So right. they have to get to know you now. Before they sort of accepted you, you're around, I'm around, okay, you know, let's talk. Right. Now it's, they gotta, they, they really watch you work. Are you fair? Do you ask them their opinion before you write something? You know, just basic rules of journalism are still true. Do they give a shit as much now as they did then? What I mean is, you know, it's really interesting. They do? Because I was going to say, like, I don't know. not to, but they. But they don't, no one's picking up newspapers anymore. No, but they find it on the internet. They do. write something, they will find it. They will. I have plenty of discussions about guys saying, you know, I think the one thing, I've been, I'm not... 
the best writer and, and I'm not the best, you know, interviewer and all that. But one thing I do do is I look guys in the eye and I ask them, you know, why did this happen? What, you know, is this, if, you know, is this fair to say? Are you responsible for a play X or whatever? I, I do that. They appreciate that more than anything. That's interesting. Because it, it's, it's sort of the old, you know, the old standard of trying to get all sides of the argument. You know, you don't just say, you know, so-and-so burned in coverage for three TDs this year. You go, you go do the research. You go look at the game video and you go ask them, hey, you know, this is what I saw. Am I seeing it right? Or, and you learn, you know, the guys who are honest and the guys who aren't. But I think in the end, the more you give them a chance to give their side, the better they like it. Like, who's the best go-to football player you've ever covered as far as from a media standpoint? To, oh, you mean just from being... Informational. Yeah, I've been lucky. They are... They're, if you put in the work and they see you're putting in the work, they're all pretty good. Yeah. That's, that's to me, that's the undiscovered or unappreciated. They don't like... Uh, you know, there's plenty of people watching game video now. It's available everywhere. You know, all 22 or whatever. you got a lot of people watching it. But it doesn't really matter how much time you spend watching it, or if you do it, it matters who showed you how to do it. And I was lucky. You know, if you made a Mount Rushmore scouting, yeah. C. Obercato would be on there. He worked for the Oilers forever. And that's, you know, eventually the Titans after the move. So he was there when you got to the National? Yeah, and I knew him a little bit before that from the combine. So how would you use him? C.O. taught me how to look at players. He took it upon himself to train me like a scout. And teams used to send their new scouts to see to travel with C.O. a little bit to learn how to do it. So what would he do with you? Like, what do you mean? No, it would be at the Senior Bowl, and I'd be like, you know, all right, I'm looking at this player right here. Here's what I see. What should I be looking for? And he would just tell me. Well, this is not I'm not talking about just a scout. This is a guy. They still do drills at the combine. He invented. Uh-huh. I mean, this is a guy who's, you know, Buckle Kilroy, Co. Picado. I mean, there there are certain scouts who will live forever. You know, they, they won't be in the Hall of Fame, and they should. Right. Uh, and they aren't appreciated in the history of the game, and they should. But that guy taught me. A lot of what I'm still doing, that's my 34th draft, something like that. Uh-huh. And a lot of what I'm doing now, looking at players, is what he he taught me. And over the years, assistant coaches have helped me. But you gotta, it, it matters that you you're learning. You know, you can't. You know, the worst coach in the NFL is among the best at what he does. Right. In the world. Right. I think sometimes that gets lost. In right. The, they went two and fourteen. They're terrible. No. Maybe they didn't have a quarterback. Maybe the owner doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe they don't have money. You know, maybe their training facility stinks. Well, let me ask you, because this just happened. Like, um, the Odell Beckham trade just happened last week. I'm from New York. There's a very visceral reaction to that trade. crazy. The surface reaction is, what the fuck are the Giants doing? This is crazy. He's their best player, blah, blah, blah. Then I'm, uh, I was at the gym last night, and I was listening to Mike Francesa go off on the opposite tangent, saying, this is a great trade for the Giants, because they can turn this into four players, and blah, blah, blah. Did he say they weren't going to trade him? Did they? I don't know. Did he? Probably. I think, I think initially. I think people are always poking at what he said. Yeah, they are. Say, um, what do you see? Like just using this as an example. Yeah. Like the average guy, because the problem is nowadays, everyone, everything is so rushed. Everything has to get out there real Twitter, quick. Everybody wants Twitter's ruined nuance coverage. Everybody wants the hottest take possible. Right. And, and you're not a hot take guy. Well, if you're reason, people are like, "What are you holding back?" I'm just, you know, I tell people all the time, "Look, I'm just explaining to you." 
what I think is going to happen. And I've done the research, so I put it out there. You can accept it or not. All right, so what do you see? Like, a trade like that happens. What are you looking at? And what I think you, you have to look at it from two levels. A, the guy's a phenomenal player. Phenomenal. And he's probably one of the Giants' best young players. He's only 26. Yeah, right. I mean, he's phenomenal. Uh, but the 10,000-foot view is, name me a Super Bowl team led by a wide receiver. By the, the wide receiver was out front, unquestioned leader, best player, led the team to a Super Bowl win. I think you'd be hard pressed. I was racking my brain. The only one that came up was Lynn Swan, and that's not accurate. And that's one game. Yeah. You know, he didn't. You know, he didn't lead them through the. But it's not. Paul Warfield. It's not edge rusher. It's not left tackle. It's not. Now they are the most prominent personalities in the league, and I think that's elevated their football standing. But. And so I think that's the football question you have to answer. Now the, the Browns are in an area where they say we've got a quarterback. They like where they are. It's worth a roll of the dice to them right. because they know their quarterback is the centerpiece. Right. They're not questioning that. They're not bringing in Beckham to be the centerpiece. No, they're bringing in Beckham to make their young quarterback as good as it can possibly be. Right. So to me, it makes sense for them. You know, the Giants, if, if they don't want the guy around and he doesn't want to be there, it isn't going to be productive. So maybe you take the hit and do it. I, I think it's a hard thing to sell to fans because you, you're not going to give them a discount when you're tanking. You know? right. It's right. like, yeah, you're peeling it back, but you should at least be honest about it. Right. You know. Do, um, do, you, do you enjoy what it has all become that... It seems like the NFL, I mean, sports in general now, is much more about off-seasons and seasons. You know, it's, I, I always say that other sports must be pissed at the NFL all the time. I mean, they've taken over March. Uh, the Combine's taken over half of February. Yeah. And it's, it's on television. It's going to network TV in the years to come. Now, right. You know, and, and I can remember the arguments people having they should put some drills on TV because nobody would work out in Indy because they all hated the turf in the RCA Dome. They all said it was like a sponge. They couldn't run on it. And so nobody would work out. So years went by when only half the players would run in Indy. Right. And the argument then was, if you put it on TV, though, everybody will run. And it's funny now to to see it, because now some of the grousings the other way, oh, there's too much on TV. Right. You know? Right. It's, it's, but I mean, it's going to network TV. So they've taken over February, they've taken over March, and the draft is taken over April. If you're one of the other sports, and now there's, teams have mini camp in June, and even that's the top story in your most heated NFL market. I mean, here. How do you explain that? People just, I think fantasy football is a big part of it because people feel like they can construct teams. You know, they get to do what they're doing. Right. You know, the Broncos are doing or the Giants. Or, you know, well, I built a team and I won. You right. Know? I, I think people like that dynamic. You know, it makes you have to do research. You know what I mean? If you're going to be good at it, it makes you have to do. So I think people feel connected. Right. But does it change, Does it change? has it changed the nature of your job from when you started covering? Like, yeah, I think more people, I think more people feel like they understand the, the football dynamic and they get frustrated with you. you think, if they think you're holding their hand, they get frustrated with you. Like, right. hey, tell me something I don't know. You know, that, and that's, hey, that's cool. You right. Know, that's, we all should be looking at what we're telling people and why. And are you, are you advancing a story or are you just repeating it? Right. You know, to me, that's the, I, my hope always is that if people read what I write, and thank God they do, but 
if they do, that they get to the bottom of it and they think, all right, I understand why he's saying what they saying, what he's saying, and then they see that the team did those things. Right. You know, I, I, I'm not a columnist. Uh, I'm not like a, you know, I'm not a, I have done shows at ESPN, but I'm you know, not like a full-time analyst. My, my job is to report why the Broncos are doing what they're doing. And then in our draft coverage, when I help on draft coverage, to say why this guy fits here, why scouts have him ranked here. My, I, my job is the why. Right. And I, I always try to remember that. I don't want to be just lipping off, you know, I think this guy's better than this guy. Well, tell me why. Don't, don't just say it. Right. So, and I, you know, people have said they like that. Some people want me to be a little hotter team you know I, I i tell you why they're not succeeding which to me is more important than just saying they stink you know what's really interesting is um i get a lot of like uh, so i teach at a school in california does adjunct it's a lot of like teach students how to be future journalists right and in a lot of ways what i end up telling them is if you can do what journalists were doing 20 years ago you you'll stand out in modern journalism more than ever I tell them all if, be, right be the why people Exactly. Be the guy who's telling you why not to screaming at you. Report, make the extra call. Yeah, Be precise with your words. It's like people who yell at, you know, you're at the airport and they cancel your flight. And you're pissed because they canceled your flight. Right. They're probably going to be out some money and the whole bit. And you yell at the person at the counter. Right. They didn't cancel a flight. Now, if they're impolite or rude, I get that. You don't want that. You don't want rudeness from anybody. But in the end, they didn't. You know, they weren't the one who canceled the flight. They, right. they weren't the one who decided this plane was going to help. Exactly. And and just yelling isn't a solution. You know, just saying the team stinks isn't a solution. You know, it's made certain people a lot of money. It has, but it, to me, it's not my job. My right. job is to say why these things happen. And whether I'm covering football or the city council, the same reporting skills apply. I think we get lost when we think, oh, we cover football. I don't have to report like I would the city budget. Oh, yeah, you do. Man, just look at the story. When we worked together in Nashville, I was writing stadium stories, arena stories, bond issue stories, referendum stories. That had nothing to do with on-field thing, but I was expected to report on it like we would. I think sometimes if you don't apply the same principles, you're not going to do as well yeah. with your information. And in the, in the end, your job is to give people information. Right. Um, you were at the, uh, you left the Tennessee and you went to the Rocky Mountain News. Rocky Mountain News. Uh, the former daily newspaper. There are two daily newspapers in Denver, the Denver yeah. Post, the Rocky Mountain News. Rocky went under uh, in 09. They closed it in 09. You were there at the time, were you yep. not? Yep. Came back from the combine. So I, I was going to ask you. And they said, tomorrow's the last day, essentially. I mean, we knew something was up but that was essentially it. So you return from the combine and you find out the newspaper's just dying. Yeah, they're shutting it down. And uh, a lot of the severance package was based on how long you had been there. How long had you been there? And only since uh, 04. So five years. So I, I had to pivot pretty hard. And I, you know, I did some freelance stuff for Fox. I did, a, uh, I did all their draft coverage in 09. Did you at all think, shit, my journalism career might be yeah, over? every day. Every day, and even it, it made me more cynical about the business. Up until then, I thought I'll do this until I'm done working. Right. And I think that day ended that. Now I sort of am always just trying to do the best I can to 
to keep doing it and be, you know, you know, be relevant to the people you work for. And, but I don't know. I guess I don't ever. Which is a shame. You know, I, I think we've lost that in all things, though. My, my dad was at the railroad. He spent 40 some years at the railroad. He didn't wake up every day thinking, I'm not going to be at the railroad. Right. Now, a ton of people wouldn't want that job. It's cold. You're in a switch yard. It's 10 below. You know, I would have lasted about 10 minutes on that job. But it was his job, and he thought, I'll keep this job until I'm done working. Right. I don't think we have that feeling as a society anymore. You know, everything's, you know, what do they call it? The gig economy? Or the gig economy? Yeah. You know, everything's a part-time job now. And I, I think, you know, I, don't, I think people as a whole don't have that feeling, so it's not surprising that we don't as journalists either. Well, do you think one thing that's changed a lot is... Um I don't know when. Maybe Gannett. I don't know. Um, like when I started Sports Illustrated, yeah. it was, let's make the best magazine, right? I want to do a story about water polo and so-and-so. Yeah, go do it. That sounds like a good story. And tell us when you're done. Tell us when you're done. Yeah. It's not going to make SI money, right? right? It's, it's not. Water polo story is not making that magazine any money. Right. But just, we want to have a really great magazine. And that sounds like an intriguing story. I don't know if that exists anymore. I think it does. Do you? I think it does, but you have to frame it more concisely now. You got to say what what's it going to look like as a finished product. There isn't so much the let's go see what it is and then decide what we'll make of it. I think now you have to more frame it out. Yeah. You know, I'm, I've afforded opportunities to do a lot of cool things. You know, at ESPN. That are, I mean, they, they're. They've been great to a guy like me. I mean, you think about it, that in 2013, uh, John Banks and Heather Burns and a bunch of other editors at ESPN woke up and said, let's hire a 50-something guy who never has done much TV, you know, done talkbacks or whatever, but I guess. Yeah, let's just throw them in and see what happens. You know, and I'm a full-time internet writer who does TV when they ask me to. We've got little units we can set up ourselves in a whole bit, and you know, you go on Sports Center. I mean, they're the ones who looked at a 50 something year old guy and said, Let's do that. And yeah, I think that's pretty rare, and it shows that the out of the box is still out there. Right. I'm as out of the box as it gets. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they didn't say, Hey, in Denver, let's find a 25 year old who's on social media all the time and understands, you know, typing with more than one finger to text. Right. You know, they didn't they didn't do that. Right. They, they took me for what I am and and said, Well we you know, if he's willing, we'll we'll throw him in the pool. See what happens. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Especially now. Yeah, that's yeah, unbelievable. To this point in your life, you're like, wow, that is really cool. So I, I will I'm always grateful to the people I work for at ESPN. You know, and I think you know, they've been They've been great. They've taught me. When I ask questions, they answer. They find people who know the answer. Those folks are the best at what they do. Right. You know, in front of the camera, behind the camera, whatever. Right. You know, the internet. I mean, you know, I, I tease my editor now, Jeremy Willis. He's a great guy. And this is the biggest gap in age I've ever had with my boss. You know, it's flipped. Yeah. He's, he's a young guy. He's been around the internet. He knows how to do it. Do you call him sir? I'll call him whatever he wants. <laughs> but now it's just really funny, and it's it's a different. Yeah. You got to be open to that. Yeah. I can't be the. You can't be the old guy shouting in a cloud. You no. Know, ah, the internet. Ah. No, none of that's going anywhere. Right. What are you gonna do? 
can't do the job the same way I did 25 years ago. That would be stupid. It's really fascinating, actually. Like, um, it's like you said before. It's on, you use the word relevant, like staying relevant. And it is. Uh, That's on me, by the way. That's not on my employer. No, of course, of course. That's on me. And I it tell, is a fight to stay relevant. And I tell students that all the time. You got to be nimble. You want one skill in this business to make it, and I'm not even saying I made it. I'm surviving. Well, you've certainly made it. But you got to be yeah, nimble. Right. You got to decide how does how we do things now. How can I fit that right. and still remain true to how I think you report? Right. It never changes. Reporting never. That's the one beauty of it. Reporting never changes. Right. How it's dispensed has changed immensely and will change immensely again. But that's the beauty of it. What you're telling your students is right. right. How you report never changes. And in fact, it will separate you from the people who aren't being taught how to do that. There's, to me, there's too much. And I've done some adjunct work too and spoken to classes. I went back to Illinois this past summer to speak at a student journalism camp. And it was cool to see where they were at. But I think it's dangerous to put all your faith in these devices will help you report when it doesn't. It's your head, your heart, your questions, how you think about it. Reporting never changes. To me, that's that will help everybody do what they want to do. I already see it in your world when it comes to mock drafts. Yep. I feel like you can see... I feel like 95% of mock drafts are nonsense. Where well, yeah, because if the, if the second team on the board trades, you're done. The dominoes have fallen. Right. Now, if you can predict the trade... But I will tell you, having done mock drafts in, in the past, I don't do them anymore because they don't ask me to. Right. But... Uh, there was a time when people would talk to you more about what they were going to do because the information couldn't be disseminated so quickly. Now no one's telling you, right? No one tells you. Now, in fact, they're lying. Right. And and Have you had officials literally lie to you about it? Oh, they it? know the penalty is stiff. I take one, and then I, it's all bets are off after that. I'm right. ferocious. I hate I, They know. Everyone I talk to knows. Don't lie to me. Right. You tell me I'm full of shit, but don't lie to me. That's interesting. Yeah. That's, you go back at people? If someone lies to you, call you yeah, and they, especially people I know, because they will say, you know, I've ended sort of reporting relationships with people if they've lied to me and don't really care to explain why. They don't have to. Right. They do, they, they do their jobs however they want, but I don't, I don't deal with them. And eventually they will come to you with a story they want out. Like nope, right? But that takes a little discipline too, because I think everybody's afraid they're not going to get a hold of enough people, or their contact list isn't big enough, and all that. Do you, um, in your job, just as an example, Joe Flacco goes to the Broncos. Yeah. Delaware Blue Hen, just yeah. like Jeff Rowan. Yeah. Um, I knew you'd be excited. Yeah, very good. Goes to, I wasn't really. Goes to the Broncos. I told him the other day, he was, he was meeting a bunch of us for the first time, and it, it's like a receiving line at a wedding. Yeah. Everybody gives you their name, and you know, 10 minutes from then, he's going to be like, oh, I have no idea I who you are. I just met 20 people, right. and I don't remember. So I told him, I said, well, I, you know, I met you at the Senior Bowl, but you probably don't remember funny and he's like i don't right no, um it's like 12 years ago so. do you need to be first getting that story i want to be right i love to be first like how are you you know the broncos need a quarterback yeah and you know they're going to trade uh and i you know the beauty of espn is i can work with a lot of other people on stories right i can say here's what i know what do you know and then you know i don't care who puts it on twitter at our company yeah. as long as it's our company right. I don't care right. so I'll, I'll work with everybody I don't need it to be on my account 
Like, did you know they were going for Flacco before? I knew he would be a really popular destination. And right before the, they finished up the trade, I knew they had been working on him for, like, the last day or so before they did it. Right. That, but it came together fast because, I mean, uh, you know, I think what people need to understand about trades is once you call the other team, the cat's out of the bag. It's like Arizona this year. Everybody says, you know, we got trade the number one pick. Well, the minute you call another team, you've told everybody what you're doing. Right. So they don't want to give you anything. Right. So it's hard to make a trade. You make a trade for nothing, you're going to get torched and fired if you're a GM. You know, so you're, you're kind of stuck. So right. you know, it takes a minute for that compensation sort of get figured out. Right. Are you upset if... Uh the Denver Post reports Joe Flacco getting traded before you do. Well, again, I'd love to be first, but I I still work off a two-source uh, benchmark, which is a lot higher than other people do. Right. I, I like to cover myself for the lie. Right. Because that's on me. That's on me. Right. And I think, you know, I hope people that read or follow or whatever they do, I hope they know I'm, I'm working hard to make sure everything I put out there isn't on freezing cold takes you know right five years from now right you know that's and, but you just want to be right first right I love being first and, we, and I again I work with a lot of people at ESPN and we get a lot of stories first you want them to be right that's that's the key you were covering the Broncos in 2007 yes and that was the year when uh, Darren Williams died yep off how, how Darren was Darren was one of my favorite young people why I was getting just, I love his enthusiasm with life when it would have been easy for him to be cynical and beaten down. Because he came from a tough place, Fort Worth, tough environment. And, make, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood like, like that. It's hard to make it out. A lot of people don't want you to. It makes them feel bad or guilty about where they're at. And, and it's hard. No one gives you, no one's reaching out. No one's reaching their hand out to you to help you up right. at, at that point. So so how do you cover a death in a clinic? I ended lot? up doing all the police stories because I had been a cops reporter and they it happened on New Year's Eve slash day. 06, 07, right? Early morning hours of New Year's Day. It was like 2 in the morning New Year's Day. And they, at the time, they couldn't really find all the news reporters to get in line. So I handled it right out of the gate and I wrote news stories about that until they regathered everyone and figured out how they were going to approach the story. So, yeah, it's, it was, you know, went to the funeral. Just a, we still, we give an award out here, the, the Pro Football Writers Chapter, every year, the Darren Williams sort of good guy award. You know, a guy who's right. accommodating to the media or respectful or whatever. But we take a vote among all the reporters. We put the, got a little plaque in the media room and stuff. And put his name on it because that's... That's the kind of guy he was. And I always try, it's so far away now and distant, you know, there aren't any players in the locker room anymore. We played with them. Even many of the coaches weren't here. Elway wasn't with the franchise then. So I always try to tell a little story about Darren when we give out the award right. every year. You know, just a little thing, not, nothing big. But just kind of, here's something I remember about Darren. Is it a... Is it a do you have to, it's kind of maybe a silly question, do you have to set your emotions to the side when oh, you're covering? It's, it's awful. The guy, is, the guy tried to be the peacemaker in the whole situation. You know, it was a bad situation. And, and 
oozes involved with a lot of people and all that. And it's New Year's Eve. The guy was trying to be a peacemaker and did what you're supposed to do, which is leave the situation. Right. And they chased him down and gunned him down anyway. Right. It's just, it's such a, it's a waste. But you see, you know, it doesn't take a football player to see that kind of waste in the way things are going on. New Zealand, those people just went to worship. Yep. You know, the South Carolina, those people just went to church. Right. You know, I just... Kind of stuff is emotional. Can you cover? So you cover the funeral. Yeah. Are you? I don't know. Like, do you need to be strictly reporter? Can you go up to the parents and say, "I'm so sorry"? Do you have to? You just- know, you, 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 at some point, you try to talk. To, you know, I talk to his mom, and, uh, but in that moment, you can't be that because their family is that. You're not. Even even if you knew him as a football player pretty well. Think you know pretty well. You're not those people, right? At the funeral, you know, from this neighborhood that he went to school with, his friends with. Don't you're the fly on the wall, boy. You're that is that's the core of his existence. You're not in that, right? And you gotta, you can't put yourself in there because you're trying to show people that you're more inside than anybody else. You can't do that stuff. You gotta just be. You gotta handle the story at the time and, and be respectful. You gotta really be respectful. I mean, you're talking to people who are going to a funeral. You gotta be really respectful. And, and to me, and respect what they're doing, but you can't insert yourself. Don't you think, like, I, do you see over the years, like, a good number of uh, writers that come along and they get in love with the fame and they like... Oh, it's a, it can be... You know, everything you write is of such interest here. I mean, yeah. Remember, you know, Nashville, remember uh, Mayor Phil Brevison? Of course. Used to joke that he could scream affordable housing at the top of his lungs and no one would listen and he could whisper Houston Oilers and everybody wanted to know what was up. Right. And, you know, you do have to sort of deal with, stay out of that. I mean, you don't live their life. You know, you're not their friend. And you don't live, you're not, you're not in that circle. Maybe, you know, maybe some guys are, maybe... Well, I know I'm not. I'm right. 30 years older than most of the guys in the locker room. And, and now I have good relationships with people and we talk about real things, but I'm not like a peer. Right. Von Miller's not your buddy. No, I mean, he, we're, we're, we get along. Right. And, you know, I like the guy. He, he likes me okay, I think. Right. But I'm not like hanging out with him in the Bahamas or something. Right. And that's not the, that's not the gig. Right. Yeah, it can be. I think people are so interested in what you're doing, you can get you can get sort of that fever. But, you know, everything I say is important. Right. Maybe, maybe everything you say should be right. And then we'll go for we'll go for the rest. I always ask this: What's the worst chew out you ever got from an athlete? Oh God, that's so many. Give me a good one. Uh, Oh, I feel like nothing beats my John Rocker. I just want to say. No, so. you, that's I feel like that's level. the gold standard right that, there. That's next level because <laughs> it's ongoing. Yeah, it's ongoing. But if you're on a beat and you're with the same sixty people every day, I'm going to be mad at you from time to time. And that's, frankly, that's part of managing the beat. Cause, right. uh, and that's why it's important you do every story the right way because when you're in those situations, you say, "Well, I asked you about it." This is what you said, and I taped it. If you want to listen to it, have you had to do that before? Oh yeah, yeah. I've had guys tell me that's not what I meant. Well, you said it. I, I can't. Right. I can't control that. Right. So yeah, that's just part of the job. Right. Now, sometimes guys go over the line, and you know, I've, 
you know, I've gotten in shouting matches I'm not proud of. Really? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not, it shouldn't be. Boring. Have you ever had to apologize to an athlete? I've not had to apologize for, like, being wrong or messing something up. I've had to apologize for just like, yelling back. Yeah. Hey, I, you know, I, I shouldn't handle it like that. But it's been a long time. Right. Since I had to do that. But, yeah, I think that's important, too. If you were going to expect them to apologize, we should. Of course. Yeah. Of course. But those are more, mostly, you know, guy coming, running out of the training room, like, threatening to throw you on the ground or something. Right. Because they're just furious. Right. Yeah, that, that's those situations. That, right. That, you know, nobody wants that. No. But, but by and large, I've, I've been so fortunate because, again, I think if you, no matter what, even if it's a hard story, a tough story, if you give the guy an opportunity, it means something down the road. And I've never had people say, I'm not talking to you again, ever. That's good. They get mad at you for a little while, but I've never had the light bulb. Right, I'm cutting you off. Yeah, you, you, that wasn't true when you wrote it. Uh, right. Uh, this Final question. I tried finding this story and I could not. You played with the Washington Generals yes, against the Harlem Globetrotters? The, the night the first Gulf War ended. I went on newspapers.com, could not find the story. Uh, Who was it for? Danville Commercial News. I just want to say, by the way, I covered the Danville Dans of the Summer Good. of Baseball League I when did I was it an intern. All summer. Okay. I did it all summer. All right, please tell. Oh, I still have the uniform. What happened? It's the greatest journalism. In fact, I said in the story, I said the greatest quote you can get is the, the coach of the Washington is a coach telling you every time you touch the ball, shoot. And I did. Every time I touched that. Did you score? I played a half. I scored three points. Scored the, <laughs> how'd that even happen, though? I scored a bucket, and I made the free throw. Wait, how'd that happen? It was, uh, they were, they were, you know, the war's going on. The Gulf War's going on. The uh-huh. Gulf War. And uh, they were doing, you know, their usual barnstorming tour. But I think, I don't know this for a fact, so I shouldn't say I do. But I think because the war was going on, they were in maybe some smaller cities going around on their usual tour and they were I called to see if I could do a story on the generals because you know know, it had been done a million times but I was a young guy and I thought well maybe I'll take a swing at it how do you lose every night and that the guys are really good basketball players I mean they were like all Americans you know division three all Americans playing for them and the guy said you know sometimes we let guys play could you do that so this is this is probably 93, right? 93, so I'm 30 something. Yeah. You know? So, uh, I said, yeah, I'll give it a go. They, they told me when they were going to practice. And I showed up and they gave me a uni. And I played the uh, played a half. Do you have any basketball skills? No, I played like three on three tournaments and stuff. Uh-huh. You know, we were still, even then, playing three on three tournaments all summer. And a couple guys I grew up with, we would go to. Kentucky, and, and just around the Midwest, we played some three on threes yeah. all summer. Yeah. I'm, the, I'm, I'm vertically challenged, so <laughs> it's mostly uh, shooting and playing D. Right. But it was a gas. They were so cool. Uh, I can't tell people how awesome those guys were. Right. And, they, and it, it was a tough life for them. I mean, it was, you, you, were, you were essentially signing away two years of your youth to go on a be on the road 300 days a year and never win. And never win. But, you know, they got to play hoops and, you know, was in big arenas. And the Globetrotter guys were awesome. I mean, they, uh, at the time, I'm trying to think who was the, I think Geese Austin was the oh, yeah. centerpiece then because Metal Art was older. Yeah. So uh, 
he would talk to you before the game and say, all right, we're going to do these bits. You might be in it. You might be not. You know? And, like, you know, when I was shooting the free throw, he was, like, walking around me and stuff. And, it, I mean, it was just, it was a fun. Yeah, it's awesome. It will always be a highlight. Yeah. Here I was just barely starting out. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I still got the uni. That's awesome. You know, I was just thinking, final thought. That Tennessee and when I, well, that sports department was actually a pretty strong sports department. Yeah, it was more than pretty strong. You know? That was a lot of good. And to see what's happening. Is, is closing the you building. know Scarborough was the editor? Yeah. It was good. They're closing the building. They're they closed the building. building now. I know. To make condos or something. So it is what there it is. There may be no more State of the Union than that right now. Because it yeah. just... Uh, that, that was 10 years. That, that really shaped me. It was cool working there. Yeah. It's fun. I always keep track of you know, I've always looked at what you were doing and, you know, a lot of good guys I mean, we worked with. You know, David Climber was one of the best great, in the country at what he did. Great. And he never wanted to be anywhere else. I yeah. never, I, I, I'm not sure I've ever met a more talented guy who wasn't always looking at the horizon. Yeah. He was always, that's where he wanted to be. Yeah. You know, he worked there when he was in high school. Yeah. Jimmy Davey, the same way. Oh, yeah. He came back from the war and Jimmy Davey was one of the first guys to cover Final Four. You know, it's just, you know, that kind of history and that, and that building. Larry Woody, and you. And Every time I made a mistake, Jim Davey would be like, you're going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to be okay. He was such an optimistic human being, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, that cool. was cool. Oh, well. Well, thanks for doing this. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're the man. All your podcast dreams have come true. You're the man. Nice. Hey, so a new addition to this podcast, I'm going to end with a quick diatribe on what I'm working on and why it's melting my brain. We'll call this segment, From the San Diego Padres, Rupert Jones. From the San Diego Padres, Rupert Jones. So I feel like every now and then, maybe twice a year, I get myself in a little social media heat. It's my own doing. It's my own fault. I kind of tweet before I think sometimes. A couple of days ago, I took on a Sports Illustrated senior writer and podcast host named Charlotte Wilder, who I don't know personally. And Charlotte, in a tweet, sort of cheered on, uh, I think it was Mitch Moreland of the Boston Red Sox, uh, and made it clear that she's rooting for the Red Sox. And I noted in a tweet that when I was covering baseball at Sports Illustrated, I just wasn't allowed. You couldn't do that. And if you were a sports writer back then, you really couldn't root. And I ended up coming off like a big douchebag, like an old man browbeating the younger writer. And, and that, that never plays well, and it didn't play well. And I think actually my, uh, my methodology was, was totally off because Charlotte's one of a, many people of this era who cover sports this way. You're allowed to show your allegiances. You're allowed to root. It comes with the turf. It's permitted. And it is what it is. And, and a lot of places allow it and are cool with it. I just came up in a different time period. And I think even if you, even if you say it doesn't impact your writing, it impacts the perception of your writing. So if there's a writer who loves the New York Yankees and he roots aloud for the New York Yankees, then he happens to cover Yankees Red Sox and he writes a piece, and maybe it's the most fair piece ever. It's an ode to David Price's pitching against the Yankees. If people know you are a Yankee fan and you openly root for a team, they're going to perceive something in your writing. So I just think perception is stronger than reality oftentimes. And I also think it's not that hard not to root openly. You cover sports, don't be an open fan. Just don't. Don't do it. It's not that hard. It's not that difficult. I just think, the again, even if you can write unbiased, the bias is perceived, therefore it exists. Again, I actually regret. I feel stupid about it. It made me look dumb. It made me look like the old man I sort of am. Charlotte in contemporary times did nothing wrong, per se, because this is how sort of sports are covered nowadays, and fandom has become a bigger part of it. I've struggled to adjust to this, uh, and maybe it's because I'm ancient. Maybe it's because I was raised a certain way. 
Uh, maybe it's because I'm just a schlub. And that's... From the San Diego Padres, Rupert Jones. I want to thank today's guest, Jeff Legwald, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff underscore Legwald and read his work at ESPN.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and five stars reviews. Really, any reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.